The following message is from the 2017 IBCD pre-conference with Chris Moles on the topic of domestic violence. I'm still Chris Moles, and this lecture is the heart of domestic violence. And this is uh, a talk that I gave years ago that actually was the uh, rubric for the book. Uh, The book actually came from a master's project. It was interesting. I was doing my MABC at Faith Seminary in Lafayette, and uh, they were really gracious to add a thesis option to the program in part so that some of us could really work through some issues. And one of the things that my professors, each of my professors said throughout, Chris, you've got to write on this, you've got to write on this. So my master's thesis was the, the workings of the book. And eventually this talk flew out of that. And I presented this at Faith. And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about where I believe violence and abuse is coming from and how we address it. So you've heard me say already that I believe this is a men's issue. I'm not denying the fact that women are abusive. Usually you'll find the power and control dynamics more so with women to children or women to elderly folks because of how important power is to the construct. So understand that you will have uh, some females. The reason why I'm so gender specific is that men are by and large the perpetrators. So years ago I had to do this. I closed my eyes and I thought, Lord, what would the world be like if Christian men cease to use violence? And I came to some pretty amazing conclusions. Can you imagine how life would be if Christian men ceased to use violence, that coercive control? So I closed my eyes and I asked the same thing. Lord, what would the world be like if women ceased to use violence? And honestly, guys, not much changed. So I made the commitment then, and I do get pushback from our movement quite a bit about on this, but I made the commitment then, I'm going to address men. We'll have plenty of time. If the Lord tarries, and we get tarries, how do you like that preacher word? The Lord waits. We will have plenty of time to deal with women's violence, but let's get the first thing first. Let's see the church of Jesus Christ become the safest place on the planet because Christian men respect and value their role more than they do what they want. Cool? All right. Heart of violence. So you've heard a little bit about me, what I do. Uh, This uh, lecture really dives into some of the the things I found as I was studying. So I believe I graduated from seminary, I think in 2011. It all blurs together. Uh, But I was in the very first class of the MABC. I'll never forget that class. Steve Byers was the professor and it was the history of the biblical counseling movement. And this is how bad it was. He said, let's go around the room, introduce ourselves. He was planning on taking a half hour, two hours later, we were done. Yeah, I know, it was a great group. We had so much fun. Uh, But that's what started me researching because at the same time I started the program, I was starting, had just started in batterer intervention. So I had been in batterer intervention about a year working with domestic violence and I started seminary work and I was combining the two, my biblical counseling training and what I was learning. And so I started consuming every Christian resource I could find on the topic. Can you imagine how much I found? One foul box. I printed off every article bought every book and it all fit in one cardboard box from a Christian perspective. 
What I learned quickly was the vast majority of resources, with the exception of maybe an article by Jay, I think George, George had an article years ago, maybe some stuff from Westminster, the vast majority was from an egalitarian perspective or an evangelical feminist perspective. Great material, but theologically distinct from where I was coming from as a biblical counselor. So I started asking some questions, and that's how I want to begin this talk, this hour. How is the church in our tribe, and I'm just going to say conservative evangelicalism, um, don't kick me out, I wouldn't, I don't think I would fall into the reform category. I'm CMA, so I can be a little bit of everything. Um, <laughs> it's true. So I have people say, I grew up Methodist, or are you like that? Like, yeah, we're a lot like that in some ways. I grew up Baptist. You're like that? Yeah. I grew up Pentecostal. You're like that? Kinda. Um, <laughs> so conservative evangelicalism. Well, here's what I was finding. Some past approaches to domestic violence that I encountered from the church. These four were the most prominent, and I think you'll find they're still in existence. Number one, that this is primarily a justice problem. Violence in the home is criminal and primarily the responsibility of law enforcement and the courts. Therefore, abusive men must be incarcerated. I don't disagree entirely with the premise, but I think it's naive. And, and here's a couple reasons why. Uh, this assumes that all domestic violence is criminal. And hopefully in the last hour, you saw that tactics of abuse go over a spectrum, right? If we're looking at this pattern, and even my guys will say this, right? I don't want to do A, B, and C because that'll get you arrested. But they're willing to sin in order to get what they want, right? Which falls into our purview. So it assumes that all domestic violence is criminal. In fact, if the courts are involved at all, in the cases that you deal with as biblical counselors, the vast majority of those courts will be something like a family court or a family lawmaster or a civil order. If you've ever uh, helped someone or walked with someone who's seeking protection from the government and they get a civil protection order, I'm not going to fall. I've only done it once. I was at the village church last year and I literally stepped right off the stage. Um, thankfully, there were stairs there and I bounded, bowed, and then bounded back up. But just for safety's sake... Let's scoot this back. <laughs> All right. So a civil order, what you'll find is you're just getting someone to sign a paper that says, you know, if you break this order, then you'll be criminally charged. So you might not be dealing with anything criminal at this point until the perpetrator breaks the order. And then the second assumption comes into play. And that assumption is that the criminal justice response is severe. And that's just not the case. What may happen if a guy breaks an order or if he's charged with a domestic battery or an assault? Let's say it's the worst and he's charged with uh, misdemeanor battery and misdemeanor assault. The judge will probably dismiss one charge so as to not affect his record because three domestic violence misdemeanors and it's a felony. So the judge may reduce his sentence, his charge. He may um, dismiss something. He may reduce it to time served. So instead of going to jail for 30 days or 60 days for a misdemeanor, he may get unsupervised probation for a year. The, the court responses are not severe, is what I'm trying to say. So the thought that this is only a justice problem and this falls outside the purview of the church, I think is naive. There was a Christian leader, you would know who he is if I said his name, so I will not say his name. I will leave you guessing. He said several years ago that batterers need 
um, incarceration, not counseling. That our God is a judge on a throne, not a social worker in the office. And I just think I agree with some of that, but it is naive to think that the courts are going to handle this effectively or that incarceration is the answer. In fact, if you have any experience in jail ministry or if you've worked with people who've been incarcerated, you know that jail does not make you less violent. (laughs) Yes, the government wields the sword. I love Romans 13. Basically, mostly because it comes after Romans 12. How convenient. That as much as it depends upon us, we should live at peace with everyone. But there is an agent of God's wrath that wields the sword. We don't have prisons in our churches, I hope. If you do, talk to me later. Try to persuade you to shut that thing down. Um, So the culture wields the sword, but we have the privilege of bearing the cross. The sword never changed a heart. But the cross can. So it's naive but it may be necessary. So don't hear, Chris, don't hear Chris saying something he's not. Don't hear me say, don't seek help from the courts. There are times in which you should. Now, most places you are not a mandated reporter when it comes to domestic violence because you can actually put the victim in more harm by reporting without her permission. Does that make sense? We're mandated reporters for child abuse, elder abuse, but in domestic violence, in most places, please check this with local law enforcement or an attorney in your church. In most places, my understanding is, We're not mandated because if I report without the victim's permission, I could actually put her in more danger because the police show up at the house. She doesn't leave because she was never ready to leave in the first place. She just wanted me to listen and help and gather data. Uh, It could actually put her in more danger. So I want to navigate that well. Now, I will tell you, I break that rule personally when someone's life is in danger or there's an imminent fear on my part of physical harm. And I tell them, Um, look, I'm not comfortable letting this set today. We're going to call Corporal Crago. That's my stop team partner. Um, I've known him his whole life. Benefits a small town. Um, And we're we're going to have a conversation with Corporal Crago, you know, about what we need to do. And he's going to connect you to our advocate that goes to the Nazarene church. Our whole stop team is believers, by the way, now, which is so cool. Don't tell. Um, (laughs) We've worked real hard to get it that way. The second, I hear this a lot from my therapist friends. I do have integrational friends. I know it happens. Um, but many of my therapist friends will say this, Chris, this is an anger problem. Violence is a result of anger. And therefore, we must address perpetrators' anger and anger cues. Anger is a part of domestic violence. But as you heard me say, I think anger is far more of a tactic than of abuse than a cause. In other words, I have seen men time and time again who use rage to get what they want. If I'm explosive, if I'm loud, it's easier than if I become violent. I don't want to become physically violent, so I'll bellow, I'll get angry, I'll rage, and it'll get me what I want. When confronted on the rage, it's amazing how quickly abusers will turn off the anger and shift to a new tactic. So if we only address the anger, I say we run the risk of creating polite abusers who only commit respectable sins. Still coercive, still controlling, just not using the anger. The second danger here, guys, is if we only address anger cues, guess what a perpetrator will say is his primary anger cue? Her. If she would just do this, this, or this, I wouldn't get explosive. 
as if his behavior is not his responsibility anymore. And the trap for counselors is that we come alongside him and then begin trying to help her change so that he behaves better. Doesn't make sense, right? It's as if God resurrected Abel and said, now Abel, if you weren't so perfect, (laughs) Cain would, hello, am I wrong? Cain would not have killed you. No, what does God say to Cain? If you will do what is right, will you not be accepted? Next, this is where uh, I struggled personally as a biblical counselor and where I had the most resistance and still have resistance in the biblical counseling movement. The assumption that domestic violence is a marriage problem. In fact, I remember when I wrote my thesis, I had one paragraph that just said, not a marriage problem. And Rob Green called me and I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And Rob said, Chris, this paragraph is the entire thesis. You have got to speak more about this. This is where we're missing it. So I was like, whoo, <laughs> right? That squirrel or nut thing every once in a while. Um, so I went back to the drawing board and I really think that this was a, a big issue for us that we believe that domestic violence is a result of conflict within a marriage. How many times have I heard this phrase? It takes two to tango. Now I'm not a dancer. I I went to Christian school, (laughs) but, but I have watched dancing with the stars (laughs) and I can tell you, yes, it takes two to tango, but it only takes one to screw it up. And it's usually the celebrity, (laughs) right? So I've heard this so much as if what we've done is we've said domestic violence is a mutual problem. And I think hopefully what we learned in the last hour, that it is not a problem of mutuality. It's a problem of power over. It's a dominance issue. And while there may be resistance that appears to be mutual, the primary issue is not a marriage conflict. Now be careful here because what you can do is, and, and Doc Smith warned me of this years ago in some supervision we were doing, that you can see abuse everywhere if you're not careful. There are marriage conflicts that mirror incidents of abuse. That's why data is so important, right? To pull the rope. If you see that pattern of dominance, then those flags should start to go up. Wait, this isn't a marriage problem. This is a power problem, a heart problem. Calling this a marriage problem to me is akin to calling child abuse a parenting issue. You know, like, oh, he just needs parenting classes or she just needs parenting classes. No, she needs a lot more. He needs a lot more. True? But unfortunately, you go to the library and you look for domestic violence resources, it'll be in the marriage and family section. If you study it in college, sometimes the domestic violence unit will be in the marriage and family counseling. Most of the time, it's in gender studies. Totally reduced to some secular model of feminism. It's a big blind spot, by the way. Hopefully, hopefully we're becoming more aware. I would love for the church to be the greatest advocate on the planet for women who are abusive, for men who are abusive. Well, that's enough of that. Didn't know I was a hooper, did you? I can do it. All right, the fourth, and I would like to say that we've moved beyond this in the last 10 years, but no, I still see this. And that is that the wife has a problem. We call this victim blaming and it's still quite prevalent in our churches. Violence is the result of frustration with an unsubmissive wife. 
Um, violence is not justified, but understandable. I call these the big butts of biblical counseling. I know. It goes something like this. I know he hit her, but she was nagging him. I know he's stalking her, but she was acting suspiciously. That that conjunction then highlights her sin and justifies his sin. As if each party does not have enough time or resources to interact with their own sin. You see what I'm saying? And what we tend to do is to highlight the victim's responsibility as if he has no control. It is sad. If someone said sad, I heard you. It is sad. But it is still something common in our culture, in the church culture, we're encountering this. So uh, they'll say violence is exaggerated. Uh, Research is actually showing, and I don't have my list with me. Um, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting my list. I didn't have my other list with me either. Research is showing that domestic violence is vastly underreported. And uh, that... I was told by an advocate this once, and I think uh, the research is showing this to be true. She said, Chris, everyone you're working with is lying to you. You know that, right? He's not admitting what he's done. She's not acknowledging everything that's been done to her because she doesn't know if she can trust you yet. The only person she can trust is her abuser because he always comes through on his threats. So the idea that violence is exaggerated, it's not that big a deal, it's concerning to me that I still hear this in biblical counseling circles. I'm not saying go on a witch hunt. I don't think we have to. I think good counseling methodology, gathering data, asking good questions, not rushing to conclusions are very helpful in us getting more of the information we need to determine where we're at. Therefore, this, it goes like this. We must teach biblical submission and a theology of suffering, both of which I love. Big fan, Right? Big fan of each. However, in cases of domestic violence, these could prove to be deadly or counterproductive alone. Here's what I mean by that. If we teach biblical submission without holding him accountable to a proper understanding of headship, then we solidify his dominance, do we not? We're not the king of the castle. We serve the suffering savior. Alliteration aside, that's what we do, right? Our headship is not dominance. If we don't address both, then we, we, we help contribute to the problem. Secondly, if we don't balance our theology of suffering with the theology of oppression, we run the risk of keeping people in harm's way. Let me try to, try to unpack that a bit. We'll talk about that more in victim care today, but I love theology of suffering, big fan of what it's taught us, how it's helped us grow as a movement and our understanding, how it's affected me personally and how I understand circumstances. However, suffering in and of itself is not godly. It can produce godliness. It can be a tool that God uses, but there are some suffering that it's okay to avoid. Did Mary and Joseph, I mean, when Joseph had the dream and the angel said, hey, y'all need to get to Egypt, because this dude's going to start killing babies. Joseph didn't say, you know what? This will be good for Jesus. <laughs> I mean, we can endure the suffering and 
No, there are times in which safety can become a priority. It's okay. And the church, not only do we have an obligation to teach suffering, a theology of suffering to our counselees so that they can conform to the image of Christ, praise the Lord. We also have an obligation over here to fulfill our role as someone who stands in the gap between the oppressed and the oppressor. So there is a balance. Do we want her to grow in her suffering? Yes. Do we want him to be held accountable in his oppression? Yes. Actually, here's what I think is happening. I'm going to spoiler alert. This is the book. Please, hopefully you've already bought it. Um, <laughs> we're dealing with a heart problem. Violence begins in the heart of an abusive husband. And remember my gender specific terms here. I'm not discounting the other. I'm just speaking to the majority. Therefore, the gospels is only real hope. Some of you, and I appreciate this, guys. This really helps. Uh, some of you came up and just were encouraging to me to keep presenting hope because you've found yourself in these situations. You found yourself counseling hurting people. You found yourself in over your head like, like we all are, right? Don't, don't forget that. What did they say? You're the little C counselor. <laughs> Spirit's the big C counselor. You're all going to always be over your head, praise the Lord. Um, some of you were so encouraging to say, keep presenting hope. Keep presenting hope. That's all we have. This abusive person's only hope is the gospel. Did Jesus die for violent men? Yeah. Boy, I hope so. Did you hear Brother Jim's prayer? We're all murderers, are we not? We all stand guilty. And yet there's no condemnation. There's hope for violent men. They can find hope, forgiveness through Jesus and repentance. We can see amazing things happen. It doesn't happen overnight, but we can see amazing things happen. This is my thesis for why I do the work. I, people say this to me all the time. It's funny. I have pastor friends who say, well, you know, Chris, you really like counseling. We're not gifted in it. We're not called to it, but you really like it. I'm like, who likes counseling? Maybe you do, sorry. I don't care if, I mean, really? Hey, tell me about your problems. This'll be great. I got dinner with my family later. I'm gonna carry it on my back. I'm probably gonna stab at my kids. This'll be awesome, right? No, we do it because we wanna be obedient. We do it because we love people. We do it because we love Jesus. We do it because he first loved us. Well, right? That's why we do this. So I'm not lining up. I'm not waking up every day going, I cannot wait to get to group. I can't wait to review this guy's homework. I can't wait to call him on the phone, talk about, you know, his abusive behavior. I'm so excited, right? No, why do I do it? I do it because one, there's hope. And two, there's something at stake. The most effective means of reducing violence against women is addressing the hearts of men. The most effective means of reducing violence against women, addressing the hearts of men. I said 85% of victims are female. That means the vast majority of perpetrators are men. It's estimated that 20 to 25% of men will perpetrate intimate partner violence in their lifetime. That means there's 75 to 80% of us who are not. Why are we not talking about this? Why are we not talking about this? From the pulpit, in community groups, the ball field. Silence 
is approval in many ways, is it not? Men, this is a men's issue. We're the ones who hold the keys to this. It, it cannot remain normal, especially in the church. This is abnormal, unacceptable. You wanna see people that we love, sisters that we love, respected, lifted up, healed, restored, then we've got to start addressing the hearts of men. All right, so you've seen my definition. What we're going to do today is, in this hour, is we're going to walk through each aspect of the definition today. Yay, definitions. Yay, thank you. And what you'll see is, if you've done some research in this area, uh, you'll see that Pastor Chris has a little different take on it than the culture. Now, that's not to say that I'm right. I'm not the last word on this. Certainly not. I'm not the last voice. I may be the first voice in some ways, right? So I'm going to take advantage of it while I can until <laughs> better voices come along. <laughs> Just kidding. But you may find something. You will see there's slight differences. And the first is this, an abuse of power. Most of my secular counterparts and even some Christian counterparts will say that power is the problem. But we're dealing with uh, power a little bit differently. Is power and authority and position the problem? So you might have a blank to spank, I don't know, says the problem. I don't think it's on the slide. I like to mess my slides up so you can see how imperfect I am. <laughs> Is power and authority the position the problem? Culturally, many people societally and in this work will say that yes, the first issue is power, that certain people have authority and certain people don't. You probably see this politically, don't you? All right, so wh whatever side of the fence you lay on, I'm not here to, to throw stones, but I do think culturally we see this in things like wealth distribution, you know, or we see it in uh, some of the socialist language that's being used around, right? It's like, well, this is not fair and everybody's gotta be on equal terms. If somebody has power, there's a problem. The model that we're given looks something like this. And what I was told, and I don't think it's my feminist friend's fault. I think it's our fault because we've not been engaged. I think they assume this about us because they've watched us, not because they've dialogued with us. All right? So what I was told when I did trainings was that Christians in particular have this view of authority, that the husband's at the top of the pyramid, it's called hierarchy, and the wife is at the bottom, and he uses his power to press down on her. Okay? That's what I was taught. And we're the biggest culprits. Right? We're teaching this all the time. How dare we teach this? All right? And what's needed for a marriage to be successful, the alternative is that for a husband and a wife, through negotiation, compromise, and fairness, find areas of mutuality. Oh. Anybody else go, ooh, it's so formulatic, right? It's so, you got to work all this out like, you know, we're doing math. So when I pushed back, I suggested this to them. When Jesus teaches on leadership, he calls us to power under, not power over. You can read about this in Matthew 20, the story of Mrs. Zebedee. You guys know Mrs. Zebedee, right? Zebedee's wife? I'm assuming, I don't know what her real name was. Janet. Janet Zebedee. <laughs> I'm assuming it's all alliterated. That's why the boys are named James and John. Janet, James, and John. <laughs> That's a first. I just made that joke up. So 
Yes, thank you, thank you. I'll be here all week. Actually, no. I'll be here till 3.30. Um, Matthew 20, Mrs. Zebedee comes to Jesus and she says, I want this son to be on your right hand and this on your left hand. The two most prominent places in the kingdom, Lord. I want this son to be Commander Riker, this one to be Commander Data. Five Trekkies, yes, okay. And Jesus calls the disciples together. Do you remember what he says? This is the way the pagan use power. This is the way the heathen do power. They lord it over. Now catch this. It cannot be that way among you. If anybody wants to be great, he's got to serve. And if you want to be first, you got to be last. In one simple statement that I think the Apostle Paul reiterates in every marriage passage he delivers later, Jesus lays out what leadership is. If you're going to be the top dog, you're going to be the first to serve. You'll be the first to sacrifice. Then he demonstrates it in John 13 when he washes feet. He goes beyond that on the cross, does he not? gives everything. Why? Because he's the top dog. But he considered equality with God not something to grasp hold of, but instead he became humble, became less than nothing. He became like us, right? So when Jesus talks about power and position, I think it's imperative that we remember that it's not the same as what the world says. And my feminist friends, they don't recognize that in large part because what they see from the church is people who clamor for power, who want it. They haven't experienced the servant leadership of Jesus. I taught this to one of my friends at our coalition against domestic violence. And she said, what what is this? What, What do you call this? And I said, well, in the church, we call it complementarity. And it means that men and women are created a little bit differently and they function better when they, when they walk in those tracks and they support and love each other this way. And then she does this and he does this. And she said, I've, that's, I've never heard that before. That's amazing. <laughs> I suggest that abusive men, especially those who claim to be believers, most of the men I work with have claimed to be believers. I will say, typically, if a man uh, comes to work with me and they claim to be a Christian, I like to think the best, but I do operate under three assumptions that if you're participating in this behavior, it's quite possible that you're not a believer at all, right? Because Christ followers don't do this. It's quite possible that you are a very rebellious believer <laughs> because Christ followers don't do this, <laughs> Right? Or it is somewhat possible you're a very ignorant believer. And I will say this category, I sometimes find this with some of my more fundamental, fundamentalist guys. They've kind of been taught a certain way. They really feel like they're honoring Christ, but they're really just being jerks. Here's the thing. All three of those approaches need the same answer. It's the gospel. Clear understanding of what Jesus has called us to be. So when we read passages like Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, we read them through a Jesus hermeneutic. So that we're not reading it through a worldly lens of power dominates. We're reading it through a Jesus lens of power serves, power loves, power sacrifices. By the way, I, uh, I use these passages quite frequently. Uh, my favorite, really, Colossians 3.19 is an excellent little dynamite verse for guys who acknowledge verbal abuse 
or emotional abuse. Uh, love your wives, do not be harsh with them. I mean, if you're a sandpaper husband, there's some work to be done, right? And I love 1 Peter 3, too, uh, because our relationship with our wife, our unwillingness to understand uh, and live responsibly with her affects our spiritual life, right? So that your prayers will not be hindered. So I suggest, and I did this in a training one time, and uh, everybody looked at me like I hit them with a something, two by four, I guess, that maybe we could have a hierarchy, but it's not a hierarchy of power. It's a hierarchy of responsibility. And maybe, just maybe, my dad was right. My dad, his name's Delmas. Hi, Delmas. Um, Delmas Burl. Uh, Delmas is a country boy, and uh, he has some homespun wisdom. He's a brilliant parent. My brother and I are still amazed. We hope to be half the dad that our dad was. He was brilliant. And uh, he used to say this to me. He said, Christopher, the more people you add to your family, the less important you become. Not bad advice, dad. Not bad advice. He also one time told me, he said, Christopher, I love you, but I love your mom more. (laughs) (laughs) I had just been in an argument with my mom. And he said, and if you're going to insist on making me choose, I'm going to choose her. (laughs) I still remember it. You know why? Because it made an impact. I knew exactly where I stood in that family and I was happy that I, I was there, right? So the more people we add, the least important we become. So I would suggest we put the husband at the bottom of the pyramid and he uses his power as power under rather than power over. Rather than lording power over his wife and children, why doesn't he use it to lift them up, support them, encourage them, empower them? Why doesn't he use it to serve, to make a real impact? And then instead of looking and negotiating for areas of mutuality, How about we obey and listen to the call of becoming one flesh? How about we become unified in the cause of Christ? And I use my power for his glory and she uses her respect for his glory. How awesome would that be? It's hard for guys to grasp this concept sometimes because I will say the previous model is almost universally held by the men that I work with. The power over model. Well, she's supposed to obey me. She's supposed to submit. Why isn't she doing this? Again, why are you reading her mail? You know, let's put our effort, energy into being a servant leader. I recently was working with a man who had never, ever considered the servant leadership principles of Jesus. It was revolutionary to him. I never thought about it that way. Leaders are supposed to lead. Leaders are supposed to lead, he kept saying. And I said, well, what would Jesus say? And he looked back and he said, well, now I think Jesus would say leaders are supposed to serve. Leaders are supposed to serve. So I illustrate it this way. You ever seen college cheerleaders? It's about to get weird. You ever seen college cheerleaders? <laughs> I know. Let's pretend we have. I know we're usually watching the football game, but let's pretend we're watching cheerleaders. Okay? And all the cheerleaders went, oh. See, there's always that one group you can mock. <laughs> Nobody? All right. So you know the point in the game where the, the male cheerleader, he's like enormous, Right? At least his upper body is, He's, you know, a big old dude. Obviously I wasn't a male cheerleader unless this counts. Um, and at one point in the, the program, he holds her up with one hand. You ever seen that? He suspends her with one hand and she, you know, is seen and noticed and so on. Another point in the game, he does this number. What's fixing to happen? He's going to toss that petite little girl in the air. And what does she do in the air? 
insane gymnastics, insane, right? And then he stands by the catcher. Of course, secretly, we're all going. Um, (laughs) Well, at least half of us, those of you who laugh. He's waiting to catch her. And I tell the guys, that's the image I want you to have as you're going back into your marriage. When we get to the point that you're ready to begin marriage counseling, this is the image I want to have in your mind. How foolish would it be if the male cheerleader said, okay, my turn. (laughs) And that's exactly what power and control and dominance and coercion is doing. It's saying, it's about me. Lift me up, support me, tell people about me, make it about me. It oozes of pride. And God did not design us to operate that way. Instead, we're called to empower our wives, to serve our wives, to love our wives. That petite cheerleader cannot do those tricks flat-footed. She needs the power of her partner to propel her alliteration again. I'm a preacher, perhaps. Um, (laughs) I'm a peculiar preacher. Uh, She needs his power to propel her so that she can accomplish what she's intended to do. In much the same way, God has given us a responsibility, guys, to empower our wives to serve in a way that only they can serve, to glorify God, to honor him. The more people we add to our family, the least important we become. But our power is essential to that. I don't want power to be gone. I want power to be used, right? Because my wife can't toss me and catch me. But when she's functioning the way God called her to function, I function better. And when I function the way God's intended for me to function, she functions better. And we become this mirror, right? This image of who Christ is and who his church is. So now you have an illustration to use. (laughs) Cheerleaders. All right. So first, an abuse of power. Second, manifested through selfishly motivated patterns of behavior. In other words, pride is at the heart of violence. Not all prideful people are violent, but all violent people are prideful. Not all prideful people are violent, but all violent people are prideful. If I'm using a pattern of coercive control, I am selfish. I love this. Brenda Branson, and please in your notes, give her credit. It got dropped off of my slides. I don't know if it's on your notes. Is Paula Silva on your notes? If you're not, just write her name down, Paula Silva. In their book, Violence Among Us, I I would say buy it, but I'm going to give you the best part of the book. (laughs) This quote's worth the price, actually. Listen to this. An abusive man is often so preoccupied with himself that he sees himself as misunderstood, not wrong. Isn't that a great summation? that he's misunderstood, not wrong. I had one gentleman that I was working with. He was under house arrest. I was going to his home once a week as a favor to a pastor friend of mine. We were counseling together. His wife was living somewhere else. He was living in this place. And um, I was uh, confronting him on his, his abuse. And he kept saying this, Chris, you've got to understand. You've got to understand, I had been addicted to drugs at the time. You've got to understand, I had worked 60 hours that week. You've got to understand, she wouldn't leave me alone. And finally, I broke in and said, I think you've got to understand that God did not design you under any circumstances to dominate, control, and abuse your wife. Can we get there? Can you understand that? Until we cross that hurdle, we'll never get 
to these issues. I say that all the time. This is like a hurdle race. You've got to clear the first hurdle before you can go to the next one. If marriage restoration is hurdle seven, his use of violence and abuse is hurdle one. I've got to get to an acknowledgement and repentant place before I pursue the other because my fear is that I'm putting her back in a dangerous situation. Make sense? So we're going to be doggedly uh, passionate about this. But you should expect as you're doing this work with this young man who, by the way, repented, they're back together. They've been together for a decade now, um, doing well, involved in a local church. Things seem to be going well, praise the Lord. But you should expect as you're working with abusive people, what I call the Marshall Tucker Band theology. Nobody, three people. All right. Since you asked, I'll sing it. Um, (laughs) Maybe you remember this uh, from the 70s. Can't you see, oh, can't you see what that woman's been doing to me? Nobody? Four of you? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Hey. And on a freight train all the way to Georgia, Lord. Okay. Um, I say that because you should expect a level of blame shifting. This is not, like any sin is hard to own up to, but this is one of those that you should expect a great deal of distraction and blame, in, in part because of the level of pride we're dealing with. I'm not, I'm not wrong, I'm just misunderstood. If you could wrap your head around what I experienced, then you would understand why I chose to use violence. This is a red flag for those of us men in the room who are leading elder boards or doing counseling, because I will warn you, you will hear stories from abusive men and your mind will begin to work and say, man, that would be hard. I could see, right, why he went there. And if he's painting a real flowery picture, you might be tempted to collude. That's why two things I recommend. Number one, always keep the main thing the main thing in counseling. Your job is not to relate to his experiences, your primary job is to relate in part to hers if he's oppressive, right? You're Daniel, he's Nebuchadnezzar. If you're in this relationship, okay? I'm not saying normative counseling. I'm saying you know this relationship. The second thing I would, I would encourage you to do is add female voices to your team. Men, If you're an elder board making decisions about a couple that is in the throes of domestic violence, please don't make unilateral decisions without at least involving female voices. You might be missing something. And and two of the women said, amen. And everybody was like, I don't know about that. What I like to do in, in individual counseling with men, I usually counsel myself. I allow other people to review my notes and debrief with me. In group settings, I always include a co lead So in groups of men, it's always me and a female, if I can do it, for two reasons. One, I want to model for them what a non-sexual professional relationship looks like. Because in our culture today, many men do not know what that looks like. Those of you who've done counseling with men, you understand that there is this weird lack of dynamic that where men and women can just be friends or work together. Secondly, I want to model for them not only how we interact with each other, but how she has value and I have value and how each of us bring that to the table and work collaboratively. And then lastly, I want her input because we have blind spots that she can see into. All right, just a thought. We talked briefly about this, but uh, I do think this is kind of the the rub for me. Um, 
My grandparents, when I was growing up, uh, I was telling someone at the break that my family were moving back out to the family farm, back where I grew up. We're taking over about 40 acres of the family farm in the hills. Yay! A lot of mowing. Um, That's why I'm really tan until you get to about here. And then it's white. It's bad. Uh, But my grandparents had an apple tree in their yard. And when I was growing up, I knew it was an apple tree because on it. Thank you. Good work. Yeah. If mama made a pie, it was an apple pie. If I needed something to chuck at a cousin, there was an apple. I knew what it was because of what it produced. Well, Jesus says this in Luke six. We don't pick uh, good things from briar patches. We get good fruit from good trees, bad fruit from bad trees, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so pride, I believe is leading the way. Um, in the production of these tactics that we talked about in the last hour. You know James 4, you're well-versed, hopefully. Uh, If not, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your evil desires that are within you, right? You want something, you can't have it. So you what? You kill, you covet. Then you ask God, you go to God and say, God, give me this, but you don't get it. Why? Because wrong motives. (laughs) In our group settings, of course, all my individuals, but in my group settings, it's amazing that in a government-run program, we have this. If you came into my group next Tuesday and you said, hey, we do what we do, all of my guys would say, because we want what we want. (laughs) Right? We go through this a lot as we're looking at the heart and we want what we want because we think what we think. So we've got to uncover what it is we're believing about ourselves, what we're believing about God, what we're believing about others. Pride does a few things. Pride distorts our view of authority. Let me put all the things up there so you can spank the blanks while I'm chatting. All right. Pride inflates our own importance. Pride inflates our own importance. I mentioned Nebuchadnezzar earlier because I think he's such a good institutional example of what we're dealing with. You remember his uh, Muhammad Ali moment? He went out on the porch. He's like, I am the greatest, right? And what did God do? He turned him into a cow, beast, feathery, whatever. Please don't tell men you're working with that if they don't straighten up, God will turn them into a cow. But please remind them that pride is dangerous, that God will oppose their heart, that Nebuchadnezzar is a wonderful case study of what, how God views this infatuation with your own greatness. One of the interesting things with uh, one client I was working with recently was uh, they held really firmly to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. You guys know? However, the practical aspects of God's sovereignty had not seeped into their daily life. And it was a fascinating discussion as they began to learn and think, wait a second, because I'm controlling of my family, it's evidence that I don't truly believe that God is in control of my family. Now they could articulate the theology well, but practically it didn't have boots on. It wasn't living in their daily life because they were God in that small sphere, weren't they? I recently worked with a man, we'll call him Glenn, Uh, And I was talking to Glenn and he was uh, managing an apartment building and he would find himself being increasingly violent and abusive to his tenants and his family uh, in the apartment building. So it wasn't a classic domestic case. He, He was violent in that setting. 
And we finally got to this point where I said, okay, let's talk about Glenn's kingdom for a second. He was like, what? I said, your kingdom, the apartment building where you're the king. And he said, I've never thought about that way. I said, does Jesus rule over the apartment building the same way he rules you at Walmart? Well, no, of course not. Then we've got a problem. You've got to give Christ control of Glenn's kingdom. See where we're going? This was an experience that he hadn't thought through because theology is big in this discussion. And many of the guys will articulate an ascension and affirmation of a theological concept, but it's not practically applied yet. And so we can draw them into those discussions. Uh, Pride makes demands of others. Pride gives unfair expectations and the price tags are always changing. So uh, when you're doing victim care and a victim is like, well, I've done everything he asked. Well, I'm asking more. I'm going to ask more. I'm going to ask more. The, the, the grip tightens. The, the control is what we want. And so the price tags are always changing. What worked today to appease him may not work tomorrow, which creates a feeling of what people call on eggshells, right? Or shifting sand. So for us as biblical counselors, if we only address the victim as somehow responsible for his behavior, we run the risk of producing this uh, unlevel shifting sand type of approach where she does well for a while, but his tactics change and she's off balance again because there's nothing she can do to change him. Certainly there's things she can do to invite the presence of God in, but he's still obligated to interact with the spirit, right? Certainly we want her to do things biblically, but we don't go and give her the false hope that she's solely responsible for his abuse or lack of abuse. Uh, Allow us to justify inappropriate behavior. Pride takes us places that normally we wouldn't go. Like the gentleman I worked with who hid under his own porch all night. Yeah. He was suspicious. Uh, His wife, we found, was not doing anything wrong. But he had conjured up this idea that she was cheating on him. She was having an affair. And so he left, drove several blocks down the road, walked back, hid under the porch because he was going to catch her. Now, how terrifying is that? And so we're processing this. He and I are processing this. And I said, does that not strike you as weird? Well, now that I think about it, yeah. (laughs) Now, I will say this, beware of this. Guess who was cheating? He, he was basing other people's behavior on his own choices. Well, if I'm doing it, then of course she's doing it. Somehow he was justified, she was not. It denies or pushes aside responsibility. So again, Marshall Tucker Band quickly offers excuses or justifications. So be looking for that. I mean, if you've got a guy who owns very little and he slips around, there's always a good excuse, then be sure to pull that rope back. Let's get back on track because I'm really concerned that every time I bring up one of my concerns, you're quick to dismiss it. Is there anything that you do wrong? Like <laughs> Anything? Um, quickly offers the excuses, yeah, resists accountability. I often say that in these situations, in a church-based uh, approach, intervention, we need multiple sources of accountability. So it can't just be the counselor. Once this is uncovered, we're inviting in maybe friends who are well-versed, inviting in elders, maybe law enforcement, if that's necessary. We're putting as much pressure from different places as we can, not because we're being punitive, but because we love him. It's unloving to let him continue, isn't it? If he's willing to submit to us, then he's willing to submit to us. And we're going to put pieces in place because he's going to throw some things by me. I'm going to miss some things. 
But hopefully if it's me and it's Johnny and it's Bobby and it's the advocate talking to her and it's somebody over here and it's officer so-and-so, then maybe this team will have a better approach of helping him address it. Uh, Position just to question real authority. So don't be surprised to have a lot of pushback. You can't tell me what to do. We'll just find a new church, right? My old church wasn't like this. They believed in the word of God. I love that one. I was like, sorry, I must've missed something in the word of God about what you're doing. Um, you know, well, this judge, that's, that's ridiculous. This thing, you know, society's geared towards women and hates men, blah, blah, blah. And anything, anything, just be ready to have authority questioned. But if we're willing to question worldly authority, it's not a, a large jump before we start questioning God openly. And the, the idea here is, guys, that this fellow probably has already removed God from the throne long ago, and he's setting squarely on it. It's one of the reasons why it's so uncomfortable, because he's got to give something up, all right? Uh, quickly, voices, concerns, and opinions. Uh, Proverbs 6, the reason why I put this in here is I use this as an exercise occasionally. I will give men uh, just a little sliver of paper with this verse on it. And I'll say, okay, guys, I want you to go through this and I want you to circle everything that applies to your situation. We've been talking for weeks about your behavior. You've been processing the things that you've done. I would like you just to circle the things that apply. Now, inevitably, what's haughty mean? You know, you'll have give and take, right? Which is good. But as you're defining terms and as you're talking, most of the guys, if they're honest... We'll circle one or two, but by the end of the night, guess how many we have circled? Yeah, all of them. All of them. As you think through these aspects of pride, uh, haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness, and one who sows discord. And it's a great discussion starter if you've got a, a couple guys that are willing to talk about it, then you can say, okay, tell me specifically about this sowing discord. Who did you try to get on your side in the church? I once had a young man I was working with and he was telling me after a group about um, how he used to be a youth leader in his church and that he was going to get back into that. Uh, He found out I was a pastor. So by the way, a lot of my guys come in, they find out I'm a pastor. First question is this, when service pastor, can I come to your church? And my church would probably be a lot bigger if I would let them. But usually I go... I can't be both. I'm not going to facilitate your group and pastor you. I've got a list in my car of Bible-believing churches. I'm happy to connect you to one of those pastors. Sometimes guys take it up. Like I had one guy do that. Within a, uh, six months, he was saved and baptized. He, uh, he, his first marriage had dissolved, unfortunately, but he remarried. They have a great relationship. He's working at a church camp now. Pretty cool story. Uh, I actually got to go to his baptism, which was fun. But uh, for the most part, the guys go, oh, well, never mind. Right, So this guy was like, I'm thinking about getting into youth, back into youth ministry. And I said, well, how does your pastor feel about this situation that you're in? And he said, well, they don't know. I'm not telling them. Well, why not? We're going to get this fixed and get everything back to normal. Well, how is concealing this normal? Right? So be aware that this type of exercise, you can pull the rope and find a lot of great data uh, while you're wrestling through this. I wouldn't do this in the first week, but I would do this after we've got some admittance and acknowledgement. It's a great discussion starter. So that's a bonus. That one's free. Um, lastly, so it's an abuse of power. 
It's prideful manifestation of uh, behaviors, a pattern. And then lastly, it's the exercise or maintain control. So we are looking for this aspect of control. Tomorrow, I believe we're actually going to do a whole hour if uh, you come to my breakout. That's a quick commercial on uh, coercive control. We're going to talk more detail about that. Control is often the goal. This fellow is not a theologian. He is a pagan. Um, Sorry, Lundy. I think that's accurate. Um, But he is an expert on batter intervention. And one of his books, I think, Abuser as Parent, he writes, intimate partner violence is at its core an attempt to dominate and control by whatever means, means necessary. I do find control to be so gripping that it's the primary motive. So I tend to put pride in the heart. I see power and control as the the life-giving sources of the tree, and then the tactics as the fruit of the tree. Uh, Controlling may include physical violence, but as we covered in the last hour, understand that this controlling behavior can manifest in multiplicity of ways. And one of the things we're looking for as we're gathering data is how is it manifesting itself? And is it more than just one instance? Is it uh, um, an entire scope and sequence of tactics such as intimidation, manipulation, and so on. We covered that in the last hour. Let's talk about a process of change. This will be a simple model that uh, we can get more in-depth and detailed in later. Uh, But for our purposes, a few things we're looking for in the process of change is number one, an acknowledgement of sinful behavior. It is important as I'm doing work with guys that we find out what you did. Behavior is not the end all, but it is the first piece that I go for. So as I told you, I do a tree model and I have the tree here. And on this side, I have the fruit and I'm gathering as much data about his behavior here because we do what we do because we want what we want. So I want to know what he did so I can help him uncover the motives and then get to the heart. I do this in order to encourage responsibility. Again, see Marshall Tucker reference. I want to do this to establish accountability. If he knows he's done something wrong, then I can help him correct it. Sounds like 1 Timothy. I want to draw attention to specific actions. This is where some of my peers and I, we disagree a little bit. Here's what I do. I usually work with a whiteboard. I like whiteboards, big, you know, items. And I'll have this marker and so... I asked the guy what he did. He'll be like, well, she came home and she did this. I said, well, yeah, let's back up. I'm not asking what she did. Tell me specifically what you did. Let's just get the, you know, the things. Well, I stomped and snorted. Okay, what snorted? What's that sound like? I just want to hear him snort. Okay, and so I might write that on the board. I called her a name. And here's where some of my friends and I kind of disagree. I say, what name? Oh, I can't say it here. I wouldn't say it in front of you. I'm like, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. If it's embarrassing for you to tell me what you said to her, then it's probably pretty embarrassing for her to hear you say that to her or about her. So let's just get it out of the way. You tell me what you said. What word did you use? Well, it was the B word. Billy goat? (laughs) I know it's sarcastic. That's my spiritual gift. But I, I'm one of those guys, I want to hear him say it and he'll say it. And then I'll write that puppy on the board. And we'll both be uncomfortable. And that's the point. I'm like, look, if we're both uncomfortable with you saying it and me writing it, then we've both got to acknowledge that it's highly inappropriate to use in your relationship. Then it gets worse. 
what else did you call her? And we'll, I'd really get specific. And I know some folks are like, that's really uncomfortable. I'm okay. Uh, I don't like it, but I'm okay with him being uncomfortable. He should be uncomfortable in that regard because those are some nasty stuff. And so I try to get specific as I can. And then I leave them on the board the entire time. And then I write them in my little sheet and I send them to his elders. <laughs> you know, here's what he said. Um, I want to promote biblical confession. So not only do I want him to acknowledge it, I want him to acknowledge that it was wrong that it violated the law of God, that it violated the heart of God, that it violated his partner in the following ways. I want to highlight the impact. So I'll have actions over here. I may go to this end of the board and I may write impact or effect. You called her this name. How did that impact her? How did that impact your kids? How did that impact you? Well, it made her feel bad. It made me feel like I won. I don't know what, I don't, I don't think the kids heard it. <laughs> they probably did, right? So I want to get impact so that he can see he doesn't have to empathize. He doesn't have to feel her pain. I think that's a secular argument that we can't use, but he certainly can sympathize with his own hurt. Man, I really hurt her. He's got to own that. And then I want to offer hope. That's the gospel, real hope. The only solution for this awful behavior and the guilt, shame, and pain that it's caused is Jesus Christ. That's your only hope. Second, I want to address the heart. So in this regard, I want to learn his intentions, desires, and expectations. Consider approaching each abusive behavior with a what-based question. This is just a trick of the trade. I'll go back to the board. And so I've got this long list of behaviors, this uncomfortable list. I will go through each one. So you can see this doesn't take four to eight weeks, <laughs> right? I'll go through each one and I'll say, when you called her that name, what did you expect her to do? What did you hope to accomplish? What did you want to see happen? What did you hope she wouldn't do? You see, I don't say why. And here's why. If I say, why did you do that? Then I, it opens the door for, well, she... Marshall Tucker band, right? Now I've opened up the door for excuses. It's just a little trick of the brain that says, you know, how, what? I'm avoiding why-based questions because I don't want excuses, I want information. Um, so we're trying to get to the heart. And then promote biblical repentance. And this is a tricky one for us, and, and I'm certainly not a theologian. I am a practitioner who um, believes in the gospel. I've got some biblical training, so I guess I am a theologian, but I wouldn't put myself up anywhere, right? I really feel like I'm the least of the apostles in some ways. So uh, I will say what I look for. Many churches that I work with, they look for this. They look for the pivot, right? I acknowledge I've done wrong. Now I'm gonna commit to do right. And then the next step is let's get him in marriage counseling. I look for something different. I want to see this. I've done wrong. I want to commit to being God's type of person. But I use Ephesians 4, right? When's a liar no longer a liar? When he becomes known as a truther? When's a thief no longer a thief? When he's generous. I'm assuming that if a thief does this, he just pivots and said, I'm not going to steal anymore. I don't know for sure if he's generous. So I would say there's initial repentance that we trust God for, but then there's evidentiary repentance where I see him walk in newness of life, right? So when's an abuser no longer an abuser? Well, when he's an encourager, a supporter, an empower, a respectful person. Make sense? So there is some time from that point of confession and repentance to walking it out 
and witnessing it. We call that the fruit of repentance. You probably heard that. We want to see. So when I do the assignment with the guys, old behavior, motives, heart, gospel through the heart, little heart diagram, new, um, new heart, new beliefs, new motives, new behavior. In the book, you'll see it illustrated like this, from violence to gentleness, things like that. We want to see evidence of this. That leads us to the last thing, which is a uh, plan of action. So I want to set some concrete goals for this person I'm working with. Oops. All right. Set some concrete goals for spiritual growth and change. So I really want, when I'm handing him off to his elders to say, six months, here's what we're looking for. Here's the change we want to see. It's not just do, do, do. It's a change in attitude, reflection. He's moving towards these characteristics. Amazingly enough, you'd be surprised the number of leaders in Christian communities, pastors who fall victim to this, who are abusive, coercive, controlling, and all the while their church boards are unwilling to discipline them because they're a great leader. When Paul specifically tells us that one of the characteristics of church leadership is not given to violence, but being gentle. And it's like we skip over that because he's really great in the pulpit and he's an excellent administrator. We want to set concrete goals where we measure growth and change. Church discipline and restoration can be part of this. People ask me, do you practice church discipline? People in my church ask me this. Do we practice church discipline? I was like, yeah, we practice it all the time. Like we're currently disciplining you. Did you not know? Um, <laughs> right, because Matthew 18 begins where? With confrontation, one-on-one. Real quick, elders, I want you to consider this. You don't have to make this gospel truth, but I want you to consider it. Most of the time when a group of elders call me, they say, we're starting church discipline. We're going, I as a pastor, I'm going to go confront him. I tend to push back and say, hasn't his wife already confronted him? Do they both claim to be believers? Well, yeah. Then doesn't she have the authority to be the first step in church discipline? Inadvertently, many elder boards I've worked with, it's a blind spot, bypass her as a sister in Christ with authority, Right? and begin church discipline over when she's already confronted him. So I invite elders to, to get information, gather data, right? Don't go in whole hog. This is one of the problems. Elders go in, you know, guns ablazing, right? Rather than going in with a restorative heart to confront him in a loving way and pull him to repentance. But they often start the process over rather than saying, well, she's already confronted him. So let's take a group now. And let's have a conversation about this. And then let's take it before the church if he's unrepentant. Let's really set some concrete goals. And if he doesn't meet those goals, then we can call him publicly. Make sure that any church discipline you enact, if there's a court order in place or something legally, that you follow that. I have dealt with churches who have insisted on marriage counseling when there's a court order in place of no contact. They're not supposed to be together legally in the same room. Please don't bring him in the same room. Romans 13 is there for a reason, right? Honor that. Even if you disagree with it, it's good to honor that. And it sets a precedent for him. It shows you that you respect authority, okay? Uh, don't, uh, make sure it's also consistent with victim requests. Please don't steamroll the victim. Um, they already have a controlling person in their life. They don't need to. Secondly, don't pretend to be or think you're the victim's Messiah. They already have a savior. His name's Jesus. They don't need you to do that too. 
They need you as a partner and an advocate, somebody who holds them accountable to truth, draws them into repentance, and then also works with the perpetrator and pulls him into repentance. This is not just hoops to jump through, so make sure your goals are specific to spiritual growth and not simply something we check off a list. And then he needs the highest goal throughout the process, right? Which is to glorify God. Make sense? Are we having fun yet? <laughs> Who thought you'd have so much fun? A domestic violence lecture. Ready? All right. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.